this is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that about 30 million people in the United States have sleep apnea, and the worldwide prevalence is approaching 1 billion. The traditional treatment is continuous positive airway pressure, or CPAP, which is quite effective and used to enhance ventilation. Unfortunately, there are a significant number of patients with sleep apnea who can't tolerate CPAP. This may result in an untreated patient increasing their risks to a variety of potentially serious complications. So how do we manage the CPAP intolerant patient? What else is available to manage the patient with sleep apnea? Which patients are candidates for these alternative treatments and how effective are they? We'll discuss these questions and more with our guest, sleep expert, Dr. Eric Olson from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the Mayo Clinic. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Eric, welcome and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Daryl. Well, I know from my own experience that um, there are a fair number of patients who have trouble tolerating CPAP. Is it known approximately what percentage of the patients who've been diagnosed with sleep apnea can't tolerate it? Yeah, some days it seems like 100%, it but does, uh, in a good number is hard to come by because how one defines the ability to tolerate or use therapy varies. But I would guess that probably as many as a third, if not more, of patients who are given a prescription for CPAP don't ultimately stick with it for long-term therapy. And is it known if this is true intolerance versus, you know, there's a lot of people that just don't like using the mask, so they don't, and that's probably more non-adherence to treatment. Can we separate those two people out? Percentage-wise, it would be tough to say, but I think clearly there are people in both camps. CPAP is undoubtedly a challenging therapy for many people to use, many potential side effects. And there are those that really cannot tolerate therapy despite efforts to try to address those issues. But just like diet, just like exercise, just like getting enough sleep in general, using CPAP can be a tough call for people. And even if it's comfortable and they enjoy benefit from it, there's still a significant percent that have trouble adhering to it, either because of lifestyle or just you know a, a general sense of not really wanting to accept that as the therapy for the condition. Mm-hmm. So for those who are truly intolerant, is it the mask? Is that the issue? Yeah, so the mask is a big issue for a lot of patients. How that mask fits on the face, where there are pressure points, leak points, the bulk of the mask, the appearance of the mask, all can be very big issues for patients. So the mask is a really common reason for people who struggle with CPAP. I mean, fortunately, there are a lot of new mask styles available, which we can talk about, but the mask is a a big point. I think the other are side effects related to the pressure, and that's primarily played out in the nose. So nasal congestion, nasal dryness, nasal irritation is another big reason, common reason for people who struggle with therapy. Let's talk a little bit about the masks that are used in CPAP. Um, What has happened with time? to the CPAP mask? Yeah, so there are four main styles, if you will, of CPAP masks. There are those that cover the nose, those that cup 
into or slightly under the nose called pillows, those that cover the nose and the mouth. And then there's a hybrid model that covers the mouth and then plugs into the nose without covering the nose. And that's one of the advancements has been this development of the hybrid mask. But in general, mask development has been probably the most significant improvement in CPAP therapy over the years. There's constant refinement of the masks, the size of the masks, how they shape and fit the face, and the bulk of the headgear. Looking for simpler headgears, less strapping, have all been advancements. Now there actually are programs available that use artificial intelligence based on a picture of the face to try to predict what masks may work best for patients. We're kind of just dipping our toes into that pool, if you will. There are and continue to be significant changes in variations on one of those four main mask styles and the straps that keep them in place to try to make them more comfortable and less bulky. Mm -hmm. I know I have found that by just spending more time with the patient who's probably in the non-adherent category to explain why it's important to use this every night and to prevent some of the potential serious side effects or potential complications, you know, stroke, MI, and so forth, a lot of them didn't appreciate that. So that has helped a bit, but uh, there's still a lot who uh, have trouble with that mask. Yeah, bless you for doing that, Daryl, because I think the first step in adherence to CPAP is patient understanding. What is we trying to accomplish with this therapy? And I think often in our field, the focus is on testing and diagnosis and less on translating those findings into patient understanding of why it's important mm -hmm. to treat. So stressing that education piece is really, really foundational to ultimately CPAP success. I have been around long enough to remember many, many years ago, we didn't really want to find any patients with uh, sleep apnea because the treatment at that time was a tracheostomy. Right. The CPAP was a tremendous improvement over that. For sure. And, and there have been even further improvements, which we'll talk about. But CPAP has come a long way just in the 20 plus years I've been in the field to see the variety of the styles, materials, and strapping mm -hmm. that really tried to make a difference. Let's talk about some alternatives, and we'll start with some really simple things. You know, I have some patients who say they use these uh, anti-snore nasal strips. Uh, do they have any benefit in sleep apnea? Probably not. I think the role of a nasal dilating strip really would be for that patient who's seeking snoring relief. But when looking at relieving obstruction in the throat area by virtue of just concentrating on nasal dilation, usually doesn't translate into significant success. Now with that said, nasal strips do have sometimes adjunctive roles. So for instance, when you're trying to use CPAP and deliver that pressure through the nose in a patient with significant nasal septal deviation, sometimes using a nasal strip will help and help make that CPAP delivery more comfortable. But as a standalone treatment, only for the very mildest of sleep apnea patients, but probably more likely for those simply seeking snoring relief. Because mm -hmm. really the obstruction is farther down the area. Correct. Well, we know there's an association with sleep apnea and obesity. So if a patient uh, says they're going to lose weight, might they be able to avoid CPAP? Absolutely. And that's a really joyous day for me when I encounter patients who succeed in that way. 
the rule of thumb is that for every 10% of weight that a patient loses, their apnea hypopnea index, which I'll define in a minute, drops by 30%. So the apnea hypopnea index is simply just the summary statistic for sleep apnea. So how many times does the patient stop breathing or nearly stop breathing per hour? And remember, sleep apnea is defined when that rate is five or more times an hour. But if you use that as the summary statistic, yes, weight loss has a tremendous impact on the severity of sleep apnea in that regard. Also, it will help mitigate the drops in oxygen that come when you do have an apnea event. So it's beneficial in that regard. So we really encourage weight loss. Um, we struggle with success in that regard. Mm -hmm. But if it's accomplished, yes, patients are able to, in some cases, wean off or eliminate the need for CPAP. Are there any other lifestyle changes which uh, may give them some benefit? The two big ones are probably number one, avoiding sleep deprivation. So remember the consensus recommendation for healthy sleep duration is seven hours per night. If you're consistently falling below that level, that upper airway is going to be more prone to close off under the conditions of sleep. And we all probably have been told that, that we snore more when we're overly tired and that's just a reflection of that. So keeping that airway firm, if you will, by getting enough sleep is one. Number two would be avoiding things, other things that are going to lead to heightened propensity for that airway to close off. So alcohol too close to bedtime mm -hmm. and certain medications, benzodiazepines being one, mm -hmm. opiate-based pain medications being another. So keeping an eye on what that medalist entails is a good idea. Also, for some individuals whose sleep apnea is highly linked to their position of sleep, then we'll often counsel on avoidance of sleep in the supine or back position mm -hmm. as another lifestyle change that, that can go a long way. And I have found the most effective way in doing that is the old sewing the tennis ball in the back <laughs> of the pajamas. And uh, yeah. patients are amazed to hear that because uh, they tried a variety of things to keep themselves on their side, but that seems to work. Yeah, I always get a smile from patients when I whip that t-shirt out and show them. But just, you know, for the audience to keep in mind, there are newer techniques. Conceptually, the t-shirt with tennis balls really rings true and resonates with the patient. But there are now belts, for instance, that can be placed around the midsection where if you think of where the belt buckle is, is basically a position sensor. Mm -hmm. And when that device detects that the patient is supine, then it will buzz at a progressively stronger frequency to hopefully arouse the patient, have them turn. So the t-shirt with tennis balls is the core concept, but industry continues to find ways to promote sleep on the sides that might not involve just putting those t-shirts and tennis balls on at night. Yeah. Well, Eric, you mentioned some medications which may worsen sleep apnea. Are there any that can improve things? Potentially. So one of the exciting things coming down the pike is a pharmacotherapy option for obstructive sleep apnea. There's a combination drug that is showing promise. It's in phase three trials and probably reduces that AHI or that apnea hypopnea index I mentioned earlier, maybe upwards of 50%. That's really exciting because you think that in patients with milder disease, or moderate disease, this could push them down into the cure range. So that's something we just have to stay tuned on because that's making its way through. 
that's the most likely. I mean, there are, again, adjunctive therapies that we do. So getting back to our earlier comment about the nose being the battleground with CPAP, certainly medications that help reduce nasal congestion can improve the CPAP experience or help someone who's using a mouthpiece as their therapy for sleep apnea breathe more easily through the nose. So decongesting that nose is another way. And then I just would mention one other thing. About 10% of patients with sleep apnea who are otherwise successfully treated with CPAP or another therapy remain drowsy. Even though we've brought that AHI down to a normal or near normal range, symptomatically, the patient is still drowsy. And those individuals, the FDA has approved medication stimulants to try to counteract that residual sleepiness that is not reversed with strictly the sleep apnea therapy. Let's talk a little bit about the oral appliance. I've had a fair number of patients who have uh, used these and uh, they're happy with them. I guess I've never been completely believing that they treat the more severe sleep apnea patients. So Thomas, tell us about the oral appliance. Yeah, so the oral appliance is a customized mouthpiece that has a tray that's retained on the upper dental ridge and the lower dental ridge. And then those trays are linked together such that when the device is put in at night, the lower jaw, the mandible is thrust forward. And the idea is that by bringing that, that lower jaw forward, the tongue, which is attached to the inner side of the mandible will come forward with it and help open up or relieve obstruction in the back of the throat by that forward action of the tongue. Oral appliances for most patients who are initially advised to try CPAP and it's unsuccessful is plan B for most of those people. But I totally agree with you. Oral appliance is not for all patients with obstructive sleep apnea. And like you, I have hesitancy, the more severe, at least in terms of the AHI, the sleep apnea is, then an oral appliance is gonna be a singularly sufficient option. But for patients with milder disease or moderate disease, so stopping breathing, maybe in that 15 to 20 times per hour range, the oral appliance can be a nice option. Mm -hmm. If you look at the studies that compare you know, head-to-head CPAP and oral appliance therapy, maybe in a crossover design. So patients get one treatment for a while and then cross over to the other. The oral appliance is pretty consistently rated higher by patients in terms of satisfaction and often usage is better. But if you look at that AHI metric, CPAP is generally the winner when it comes to that comparison. So it gets to be this trade-off of if this is a therapy that maybe is not quite as efficacious in lowering my AHI, but I'm more prone to use it versus a therapy that will eliminate the sleep apnea like CPAP, but maybe more difficult to use. And that's that value equation. I really like oral appliance therapy. We have a, a significant number of our patients who are on those. The key thing that maybe the audience should remember is because the impact of the AHI is hard to predict upfront, a patient who gets an oral appliance, it's very important that they have follow-up testing on the appliance to, to assess its efficacy because we don't know going in with many individuals what the ultimate impact is going to be on their sleep apnea therapy. But it's a nice collaboration with dentists. So the dentists are the ones that fabricate the appliance, help fit them, instruct the patient on how to adjust the mandible over time. And then the sleep specialist helps monitor that therapy going forward along with the dentist. Eric, you mentioned follow-up 
assessment, um, is an overnight oximetry adequate for that or should they need something more extensive? Yeah, it could be. So um, yeah, we do um, overnight oximetry with oral appliance therapy. I think they're all with the proliferation of home sleep apnea testing equipment now where mm -hmm. you can actually get an AHI estimate depending on the equipment that you use. I think more often we're actually using home sleep apnea test equipment. So these are devices that will give you oximetry data, they'll give you pulse rate data, but they may be measuring other things, whether it's peripheral arterial tone or whether it's actually measuring nasal airflow, oral nasal airflow through sensors, but helps you get a little bit farther than just looking at that oximetry profile. Now, some of these portable or out of center sleep testing equipment can be mailed and it's disposable. So the patient can get the equipment at home without even coming in, use it, and then that data transmits back to the center for analysis. So oximetry is one option, but probably more and more, we're gonna see these home sleep apnea test kits mm -hmm. used in that manner. Okay. Well, let's talk about surgical procedures. There are a couple available. Sleep apnea surgery kind of comes down into three categories, actually four, if we think about it. One would be weight reduction surgery. We've already talked previously about weight reduction. The second would be soft tissue surgeries. So these are surgeries on that uh, the back of the throat. So basically soft palate and uvula-based surgeries with or without tonsillectomy. And, and the classic is the so-called UPPP or uvulopalatopharyngoplasty. The UPPP sort of was hot when I started in this field and really over time enthusiasm has cooled because we realized that as a standalone surgery, most patients do not get a satisfactory outcome from that alone. And we might expect perhaps about a 30% reduction in that AHI by just simply operating on the, the soft tissue at the back of the throat. Now, Still, some patients can benefit, and those typically are those who are thin, younger, have a milder degree of sleep apnea, and have significant tonsillar tissue. So if, if the patient's in that phenotype, we will often proceed with soft tissue surgery. Weight reduction surgery, that soft tissue surgery, the other big category would be structural surgery on the face. So so-called orthognathic surgery or specifically maxillomandibular advancement. Maxillomandibular advancement involves a strategic cut of the maxilla and mandible, and then everything brought forward by about a centimeter. So that advancement of the facial bony anatomy also has a similar opening traction that's placed on the upper airway. It's extremely efficacious in that the AHI reduction can be in the 80 plus percent range with that surgery, but it's often a difficult surgery to introduce to a patient because they hear the facial anatomy being moved, immediately think about their appearance and how that might change. Um, so it's a niche uh, player right now in our in our treatment toolkit, but in the properly selected patient, quite impactful when we do it. And then the fourth big category, surgery would be the latest in terms of hypoglossal nerve stimulation or the so-called INSPIRE procedure named after mm -hmm. the company that is marketing that. That's the one I wanna hear about because I haven't had any patients who have used that, but it sounds pretty impressive. Talk a little bit about that upper airway stimulation. Yeah, device. boy, it really, I'm a believer in the power of marketing because patients are definitely hearing about this and are interested. 
at its essence, Inspire is three components. There's a what looks like a pacemaker that is placed underneath the skin right below the right collarbone or clavicle. And then coming out from that impulse generates called is a sensing lead. So this is a sensor that rides above the ribs. It's not in the chest itself, beneath the, between the skin and the ribs. And then a stimulating lead that goes from that impulse generator up to the hypoglossal nerve at the tongue. So the hypoglossal nerve is just that cranial nerve that allows has the motor impact of the tongue. So when the sensing lead detects that the patient is inspiring, taking a breath in, it tells that impulse generator to send an electrical stimulation up to the hypoglossal nerve. So with inspiration, you have the tongue going forward rather than being pulled into the back of the throat and leading to obstruction. And then when that inspiration is over, that stimulation turns off and the tongue relaxes during exhalation. And so the patient is left with a about a one and a half to two inch surgical incision at the right subclavicular area and about a one inch incision there uh, beneath the mandible. So this is where the impulse generator is put in. This is where that hypoglossal nerve is connected to the tongue. There's very strict eligibility criteria and that's a big part of our initial meetings with patients. So let's just talk a little bit about those. Number one, the hypoglossal nerve stimulator is limited to people who have tried and failed CPAP. Inspire therapy is not a first line therapy. It's considered a salvage therapy for obstructive sleep apnea. Number two, this is a therapy limited to patients with a BMI below a certain limit. And that varies depending on the insurer. Medicare has chosen a BMI cut point of 35 or lower. Many private insurers have selected a cut point of 32 or lower. So the BMI, that's an important hurdle because many of our patients are above that BMI when they initially inquire about this operation. The third eligibility criteria is that the patient has to have what's called a drug-induced sleep endoscopy. So we take the patient into the operating room, provide them with medications to put them asleep, and then through a camera means, do that nasal pharyngoscopy to look at the pattern of collapse within the upper airway. So if the airway is being circumferentially narrowed, so from all directions, then stimulating the tongue isn't gonna make a difference and the patient is not considered a candidate. On the other hand, if it's primarily that tongue that's coming backward and posteriorly blocking off the airway, then we can predict more success. And then the last criteria would be, this is a therapy for people with moderate to severe sleep apnea, but not too severe. So that AHI, that apnea apnea index has to be between 15 and 65 events per hour. So the super severe, it's not a treatment for. The mild, it's not a treatment for. The one last thing I would say is that Inspire or hypoglossal nerve stimulation therapy is a journey. So there's that whole eligibility assessment up front. And then the surgery itself is an ambulatory surgery, so generally a couple hours, but patients typically go home immediately after the surgery. And then there's a one-month healing period. So we don't use the setup to allow things to heal for one month. And then the patient comes back and we turn the system on, which means we find the lowest energy level that just starts to advance the tongue ever so slightly forward. And over the ensuing three months, the patient 
through a handheld remote that controls the system gradually up titrates on their own the energy level. So it's sort of like weightlifting. You're just getting that tongue muscle to gradually get used to more and more of that stimulation. And then at the end of that three-month journey, we do a sleep study and fine-tune that energy level so that we better understand exactly what is needed to be therapeutic. So sometimes that patient uh, is a little disappointed when they hear mm -hmm. that, that this isn't just a implant and, and off we go. It, it, there is a journey that starts with eligibility all the way through titration over several months. Yeah, so it's a pretty extensive evaluation and a fairly invasive procedure yeah. involved. But for those who are candidates and have the device inserted, is it pretty effective? Yes. I take a little bit of a pause there because as I reflect on our experience so far, which has been a little over 100 patients, we've had clear successes and others who I would say less enthusiastic about their overall experience. So if you look at the published literature, in general, you would expect that about 70% of patients who have Inspire will have their sleep apnea at least down into the mild range. So that is probably in that less than 15 event per hour range. And that's important because it appears that mild sleep apnea does not carry the same long-term risks for adverse cardiovascular and metabolic consequences like more moderate to severe disease. So that may be a successful outcome for a patient, even if there's still some residual events going on. But there are some side effects of therapy that can sometimes, that reduction in HI has to be balanced against. So for instance, the amount of energy that's required to move that tongue sufficiently forward may be difficult for a patient to tolerate. And, and that stimulation can wake them up during the night. Now, fortunately, there are ways that we can change how that electrical signal is delivered to the hypoglossal nerve to try to make that more comfortable, but that may not be completely successful. Some patients may have abrasions on the underside of their tongue. So if you think about that tongue sliding over those mandibular-rich teeth all night, sometimes that can be irritating. And we may have to use a bite guard there. Sometimes people can get very dry mouth with this therapy if that tongue is going in and out of the mouth all night. We generally see a significant reduction in the AHI, although we may not see a cure. The cure, that is getting an AHI of under five events per hour, may be more limited, perhaps 30% of patients, but it can still be successful if we can get that AHI lower, the patient is symptomatically better, that can still be deemed a success. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, medication, which is possibly in the future. Anything else excite you about the treatment of uh, sleep apnea? Well, people are always trying to build a better mousetrap. So that mm -hmm. there are a lot of very creative efforts going on right now. Pharmacotherapy is one. I think what I'm seeing slightly resurging right now is an interest in what I would call myofunctional therapy. So that is efforts to try to improve the tone, if you will, of that upper airway musculature to try to make it more resistant to collapse. So there are uh, people looking into just how um, we can collaborate, say, with speech therapy on exercises that can be done. 
to devices that you can insert now into the mouth that provide an electrical stimulation to the muscles of the upper airway and try to tone through that mechanism. So I think myofunctional therapy it excites me. I think these new weight loss medications are quite exciting and the impact that's having, you know, then indirectly on sleep apnea severity is exciting. And then, as I mentioned, pharmacotherapy directly for sleep apnea, I think will continue to grow. And certainly the CPAP manufacturers are constantly updating things. So that is always exciting to see. So yeah, I think there are reasons for patients to be optimistic that, that otherwise may their heart may sink when they think about CPAP as the ultimate outcome of, of going through this journey to find if they have sleep apnea. The repertoire of choices continues to expand. Yeah. Well, it's certainly come a long way from the old days of tracheostomy. Eric, you've given us a lot of uh, information about the alternatives to CPAP. Can you kind of summarize our discussion with maybe two or three key points? Yeah, I think one is I'd echo the statement you made earlier about education. I, you know, I think CPAP does such a good job. It's hard to push that to the side. And I think educating the patient on the rationale for that therapy is really an important point and where one where we can partner with our colleagues in primary care to make that message clear to patients. So I think that's one. Number two, there are a lot of ways to troubleshoot CPAP, okay? Whether it's humidity, adding that to the circuitry, whether it's adjusting the mask, whether it's engaging with increasingly sophisticated technology from companies that can be used on the phone to give patients feedback and to provide education. We can salvage that CPAP struggler probably in close to 50% of occasions if we just get that opportunity to troubleshoot. So mm -hmm. don't give up on that too quickly. And then three, I think would be stay tuned for pharmacotherapy. I'm excited about that, where it's gonna fit in. I'm not yet sure, but I think that's an exciting development that will open up a new horizon for patients if that comes to fruition. We've been discussing alternatives to CPAP in the sleep apnea patient with sleep expert, Dr. Eric Olson from the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at the Mayo Clinic. Eric, thank you so much for sharing all this information with you. It's been a fascinating discussion. Oh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for your interest, Daryl. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week. <laughs>